Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm Jonathan Strickland, and with me once again is Joe McCormick. Hello, everyone. Joe, you and I have had uh, a really long conversation about the post-apocalyptic state of affairs and how that deals with technology. So long, in fact, that we suddenly discovered we'd been walking through the desert looking for gasoline for five hours. Yeah, and that horse still has no name. So (laughs) we want to go back to where we left off with our post-apocalyptic discussion. We will conclude this episode with our talk of our favorite post-apocalyptic stories and settings. So enjoy. Okay, let's talk about our nuclear facilities, because I know I have at least heard or read that you... Like a nuclear reactor goes for a long time without needing refueling. Yeah, like more than a year. Yeah, so, I mean, you've got those rods in there. They're doing their thing. You don't need to replace them, but like the other plants, this might just be an issue of maintenance and monitoring. Yeah. um, uh, The... I I was reading the reports from or really the estimations from uh, someone who had worked in power plants Mm -hmm. and they had talked to various power plant engineers of different types of plants uh, to get their estimations. And when they they said when I talked to the nuclear guys, they said, are you crazy? (laughs) Because it was like, look, I'm just trying to answer a question about zombie outbreaks. I'm not crazy. (laughs) And they said, well, maybe if everything went well, if there were none of these little uh, same thing, like if there were none of these alerts that pop up that would necessitate a shutdown, uh, you might go as long as a week. And they're, they're just looking at the probability of one of these smaller events that would lead to an automatic shutdown occurring. They said, you know, if a human is there to deal with whatever the issue is, you could go for more than a year without having to worry about refueling. And after that, it would be tricky depending upon how many people are around because it requires a lot of special equipment to refuel a nuclear power plant. But up to that point, you could supply power for a year. But if there's no one there to monitor it, Probably maybe a week would be about as long as you could expect before something leads to an automatic shutdown. So the best one so far. But then we have the 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 best one of all. If you are getting your power from an, a hydroelectric plant, mm-hmm. assuming nothing's gone wrong with the dam, then you are in great shape. Yeah. I mean, doesn't need fuel. Yeah, your your energy is coming from water flowing through those turbines. As long as nothing mechanical is going wrong with that, you could probably get power for weeks or maybe even a month without any interruption. Yeah, now when would you have to have major maintenance intervention? I guess it would maybe be if the if the water flow changed dramatically, if there was flooding and you needed to change the levels of the floodgates or something. There could be that or it could even be through the transmission of mm-hmm. power, not even the generation, but just the transmission lines. Like yeah. there are a lot of different parts that are uh, that are involved in this and Many different power plants, like typically they would have engineers come in and step up or step down the amount of power being put out due to demand. Like the the grid typically is making just as much electricity as the demand warrants. Mm -hmm. Like it's that's it. Like as much as we need, that's what the power grid is providing. Uh, In this situation, you no longer have someone there to make sure that that's what's happening. So so problems could result. Uh, uh, ultimately from that. You know, there are actually a couple of different post-apocalyptic movies and fictional scenarios I can think of where the the main goal certain characters had was getting hydroelectric plants back up and running. Yeah. 
I, I'm not surprised. I mean, that to me would be, well, again, it's, it's the one where as long as you have the mechanical knowledge of how to do repairs and maintenance on the system and, uh, just general knowledge of how the, the transmission system works, it's the most reliable, mm-hmm. right? Like it's, it's more reliable than solar or wind because the water's always going to flow unless something really major changes the nature of the, the area. In which case you probably have more things to worry about than your electricity. Um, uh, but otherwise, yeah, I would imagine that would be a top priority. It's the simplest of all the things. Cause you think of things like coal, you have to mine the coal. So even if you, even if you had people to keep moving coal into the, uh, the power plant, most coal firing plants have enough coal on hand for 60 to 70 days of power. So after that 60 to 70 days, even if you had the people there to look after it, you would have to then go and mine more coal. You'd have to get your hands on more coal to keep the coal plant going. So yeah. hydroelectric makes way more sense in that case. Yeah, I was trying to think what different types of alternative or imagined power plants would be the most resilient to Earth disasters, you know, mm-hmm. whether it's zombies, nuclear bombs. Nuclear uh, zombies. At, yeah. yeah. Asteroid impact, cyber attacks. And the one idea I came up with that was most interesting to me, at least, though perhaps wrong, is orbital solar. All right. So let me take a guess what you mean. And I, I'm literally guessing because I have not I have not looked at these parts of the notes. You added this while I was recording a different episode. <laughs> so this would be a uh, network of solar power capturing satellites that mm-hmm. would then use a means like a microwave beam to beam energy down to the surface of the planet, which then would be distributed through a power grid. That's exactly right. Okay. So you, you've got solar farms, except you're moving the solar farm itself from the surface of the Earth to orbit. Yeah. And that has some pretty obvious advantages. I mean, number one, you're not dealing with cloud cover intercepting mm-hmm. that, that precious solar energy you need. The receivers are out there in space, so they're always getting sunlight. Also, you don't have nighttime because uh, at geosynchronous orbit, these things will almost never be blocked from the sun. They might mm-hmm. pass, you know, in the shadow of the Earth in very rare cases. They don't spend much time in it. Yeah. So these are giant solar panels in space that mm-hmm. can receive almost uninterrupted sunlight. They convert the sunlight into DC electricity, which would then be converted in, into some type of radiation that could be sent via a targeted beam down to receiving stations on Earth. Mm-hmm. And the two major candidates for the beam radiation are lasers and microwaves. Mm-hmm. And microwaves are really where it's at today. So these solar power satellites are they're usually SPSs mm-hmm. in the industry lingo, uh, would be a really daunting project to create because they'd have to be absolutely huge. Right. And you need a bunch of them to really cut into Earth's energy demands. Mm-hmm. And there was a former Department of Energy uh, NASA joint research project from the 1970s that envisioned a fleet of 60 satellites, each one about 55 square kilometers in photovoltaic surface area. Wow. Uh, together, all generating about 300 gigawatts of electricity. <laughs> okay. Um, so then, of course, there's the question of the wireless energy transmission, which is, has been a problem historically, but we're getting better at. Mm-hmm. In fact, just in the past few years, there have been some projects that are that are making strides in this. 
in fact, I just read an interesting article in the IEEE Spectrum from last year about JAXA, the, the Japanese Space Agency's plans to possibly look into creating an orbital solar farm. And they're doing preliminary research on that, like mm-hmm. on these wireless energy transmissions. And so these days it looks like most of the people who are still interested in SPS are talking about microwaves rather than lasers. And so this would be a microwave frequency transmission from the satellites to the Earth. And then the receivers on the Earth would be what things that are called rectifying antennas. Mm-hmm. They're antennas that receive the microwaves and then convert them into electricity. The microwaves are generally considered better than lasers for beaming the energy to Earth because lasers in the visible spectrum or wherever they would be are more likely to be intercepted by cloud cover. Sure. And the microwaves are much more resilient to penetrating the atmosphere. Apparently, low-frequency microwaves, so the really long wavelengths, Mm -hmm. are the best at penetrating the atmosphere. They're, They're much better, but they, of course, come with the problem that you need really big antennas. Right. Yeah, your antenna size is uh, is reliant upon the length of the wa- the wavelength of whatever you're trying to pick up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so I couldn't exactly figure out how well the space based you know life route of the microwave beam would survive cloud cover that was based on particulate matter instead of water vapor because I was trying to imagine okay let's say there's an asteroid impact super volcano eruption or nuclear bombs create nuclear winter, whatever it is that puts ash, dust, particles into the atmosphere and blocks right. the sun, would the microwaves from space be able to penetrate that any better than the sunlight itself would to just get to, you know, solar panels on your roof or in the desert? Right. And I don't know the answer to that. Yeah, uh, it's but, one of those things that probably doesn't come up in a lot of the white papers on the right. subject. <laughs> right. So in the case of nuclear winter, this would still provide power. <laughs> So, yeah, that's just one interesting possibility of right. sort of like uh, outsourcing our our energy production needs away from the ground in places where an Earth-based catastrophe might not touch them. Right. Though there are, like I said, some scenarios that might interrupt uh, power from those sources or might not. It's yeah. hard to tell. I mean, again, it all depends upon the nature of the disaster, yeah. right? And, of course, you can still imagine that some kind of space weather event could could very well fry those satellites. Sure, yeah. Solar flare might might end up uh, disrupting that. Or it could be something on the ground uh, ends up frying the transmission infrastructure, not, not necessarily the receiving antenna, but just the means of getting electricity from the receiver site to the places where it's needed. If that's fried, then... You know, you could still be generating electricity, but it, you can't get it to where it needs to go. In other words, if the power lines themselves are damaged as a result of whatever the catastrophe was, yeah, then you're really you're still stuck. Totally. And and some of the things that would come out of this, I mean, they're really pretty grim. Like even the immediate effects. And this is the people who have gone through blackouts uh, can talk about the these. Uh, there was a big one in um, 2003 that had people trapped on subways, had people trapped in elevators. You know, you couldn't you know, things that relied upon electricity for operation stopped. And then, you know, you, you could be in a place like a, an elevator where you also no longer have climate control. Ooh. Yeah. Imagine getting stuck in one of the elevators here during this month. Like Atlanta has been incredibly hot and humid this month. So you're stuck in an elevator. Let's say there's like seven other people in there with you. The elevator stops. Climate control stops after an hour or two. You know, you are already with a bunch of other people crammed in this small space. That's going to get intolerably hot. Um, 
And that, I mean, that could get to a point, depending upon where you are, it could get to a, a, you know, a point that's, that's very dangerous, particularly for people who are already in poor health. Mm-hmm. Uh, subways, similar problem. You know, you don't necessarily want to immediately evacuate the train. If it's a temporary power problem, then once that comes back online, you've got that third rail that would be of a deadly, uh, to come into contact with it. So it's one of those things that you des- definitely need a, an evacuation plan. Uh, I, I've read that if you had a blackout that lasted longer than a few days, like a, a true blackout that lasted longer than a few days in New York City, then the many of the subways would end up having flooding issues. Yes. Because they no longer would have sump pumps that would pump water out. Yeah, I've read the same thing. Yeah. They, they have to be pumped out every single day. Yeah. Even if it's a day that's there's no rain, they mm-hmm. still have to be pumped out. So then you you have infrastructure problems that once the power comes online – that electricity going through the areas that have water that can actually end up uh, causing debris to catch on fire, and then you got fire on the tracks as well. I mean, there's lots of issues that roll out just from losing power. That sounds like a great like folk album title: Fire <laughs> on the Tracks. Fire on the Tracks. Yeah, fire on the tracks. Yeah, it's a the the lost Johnny Cash album. Uh, also, you got you have issues with traffic because if all the traffic signals are out, then there's no way to regulate traffic. Whoops. Yeah, uh, Joe, I'm sure you've driven in Atlanta after there's been power outages where. Oh, yes. Yeah. How, how lovely is it to come up to one of those intersections? Well, are now, are you talking about the intersections that have the, uh, the, the flashing lights well, where it just doesn't know what dead. to do or it's just blank? It's just blank. I've, I've come on that too. It's not fun. People are eager for their turn. Yeah. Let's say. There, there are times where, like, it's odd. Uh, I don't know if this is the case in lots of different cities, but in Atlanta, uh, people either treat everything like it's a four-way stop, even if it's a blinking yellow light, which means proceed with caution, not stop. Mm-hmm. Um, but people will treat everything like it's a four-way stop, or they treat like nothing is a four-way stop. <laughs> and either way, it's not good. And just imagine, like, this is nationwide. You've got no means of regulating the traffic. You also have no way of of being able to have uh, emergency responders get to where they need to go in a in a fast way because everything's clogged up with traffic as people are trying to get home, or people are worried about how much fuel they have. That's mm-hmm. another big issue. If the electricity goes out, most fueling stations, in fact, nearly all of them, require electricity to operate. Right. So you can't refuel your vehicle. But you can siphon someone else's guzzling. <laughs> and that might end up being an issue, too. Uh, yeah, so uh, cell phone service might go out. A lot of cell phone towers have backup generators, but that only lasts as long as the fuel does. Mm-hmm. Not all cell phone towers have backup generators. So once it goes out, they're offline, which means your phone might work, but the person you're trying to call, they might not have a working cell phone tower in range. And then, of course, remember that in many major catastrophes and events, you're going to have so many people trying to access the cellular system. They're flooding it. Right. You can't get access. Yeah, we've seen that happen. We've seen that happen. Even in even in non-emergency situations, when there's just a large number of people, like Mm -hmm. uh, when CES happens every year or Comic Con, there's so many people trying to connect to the local network that it just overloads it and nothing goes out uh, and nothing comes in. It's like uh, the the Willy Wonka factory before they opened it up with the golden tickets. <laughs> nobody ever goes in and nobody ever comes out. Uh, yeah, so it's it's a pretty grim situation. We'll talk a little bit more about um, possible uh, the possible toll <laughs> in just a bit. But before we do that, let's talk also about some of the other systems that because of the power outage, 
would be affected. We we just touched on one, the communication system. Sure. So satellites would largely be unaffected by any Earth-based catastrophe. If it were a solar flare, then obviously satellites would be – actually, they'd be the most vulnerable. The further out you are, the more vulnerable you are to, to like a solar flare or, mm-hmm. or coronal mass ejection. Um, then – you know, you could end up having the electronics fried on the satellites. A lot of them are shielded pretty heavily for that sort of stuff because it's more likely to happen to a satellite than it is to electronics here on Earth. Yeah. But a truly powerful one, and there have been some in the past, could really overwhelm those satellites. Uh, anything connected to the power grid obviously would be uh, would be vulnerable. So... Uh, you might be able to get radio signals if you have a battery operated radio, which, by the way, you should have a battery operated radio. Mm-hmm. Um, or a hand crank hand, operated. Yeah, hand crank operated radio would be great too. Uh, either of those or both. You know, there are a lot of combination systems out there where you can get one that works on either battery or hand crank. I recommend having one of those. Uh, of course, that will only last as long as the radio broadcasting power is. <laughs> Has a, you know has a supply of power from whatever source it's pulling it from, like a generator, a backup generator. Once that backup generator is out of fuel, if the blackout continues, then that's going to go dark too. So communications might last a little longer than the power does, but not it won't be indefinite. Um, I've also seen uh, people recommend that you uh, go ahead and invest in walkie-talkies mm-hmm. because they can uh, provide for communication over sometimes you know miles of distance uh and could be invaluable uh, depending upon where you are so uh, uh cell phone towers and radio stations would all go offline eventually there are actually some developing nations that are making certain that their cell phone towers are not on the power grid at all mm. uh, either because there's not a power grid in those remote locations or it's just so unreliable that in order to have a stable communication system their self, has its own power has power its own supply. power supply. Wow. Yeah, the, a lot of them are running on their own generators, and many of them are uh, using solar power as a, uh, a primary means for generating electricity for during the daylight hours. Wow! So it's pretty interesting. That and is. We could take a note from that. Like we could start building out infrastructure to be robust in that same way and and independent in that same way. Uh, and you know, like I said. Just because you have access doesn't mean everybody else you know does. It could still end up being a big issue. You might not be able to get in touch with anybody. So that's power and communications. But, you know, there are other things that we rely upon that we take for granted. <laughs> like, uh, hey, have you ever gone up to a faucet and turned on the knob and nothing came out? I've done that in my home before. Isn't that a terrifying experience? Yeah, it's it's especially bad when it's like your mouth is full of toothpaste. Yes, that's and... not that's not good. Yeah. Um, running water is one of those things that we often take for granted. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, if the power grid system is down, running water will follow. Maybe not immediately. You might actually be able to have running water for a day, maybe a little bit longer if you happen to live in a place that has a lot of water in its pipes. Like New York City actually could potentially hold a couple of days worth of water mm. in their pipes um, just because the water pressure that's built up and the, the water supplies are enough to – go for another couple of days, assuming that everyone's not immediately thinking, oh, humanity's coming Fill to up an every end. container in the house. Yeah. Or uh, which I mean, honestly, if I thought if I thought that the apocalypse was happening the 
first thing I would do is fill up every container in the house with water. Yeah, me too. Uh, also, I'd want to run the washing machine to clean all my underwear because I'm <laughs> sure that it was very recently soiled. Uh, <laughs> that's how scared I would be. I would soil not just the underwear I was wearing, but every pair I own. Um, uh, but no, I, I, you would, you would think that that would very quickly uh, eliminate the the supplied water. In the United States, we mostly are creating our water pressure through water tanks. Mm-hmm. The water tanks are elevated. Um, it's funny. There's actually a very specific formula. Every uh, every foot of height provides 0.431 pounds per square inch of pressure. So if we want to convert that to the metric system, for every 30.48 centimeters, you get 2.972 kilopascals kilo of pressure. Uh, that means nothing to me. I have to do the pounds, the, the pressure, the, the per square inch of pressure. But, uh, municipal water supplies run between 50 and 100 psi or 345 to 690 kilopascals. Mm-hmm. And most water towers contain enough water to supply the surrounding community for a day. Uh, assuming normal, normal use. use. Not yeah. that everybody is trying to fill Cord up every water. container yeah. in their house. Yeah. So the problem is that to refill those water tanks, you have to pump water. Up to those, and, and those take some power. Yeah, those pumps may be running on electricity. So if they're not running on electricity, they're running on fuel. So either they're running on electricity, and therefore you can't use them anymore because the grid is offline. So once the water's gone, it's gone. Or they're running on fuel, and then once your fuel runs out because you aren't able to transport or refine more of it, or or get your hands on more of it. The water runs out. Either way, the water runs out. It's just mm-hmm. a question of time. So uh, that's a huge issue. Yeah. So it would really make you wish that you had access to clean well water. And you might, depending on where you are. Like we live in an urban environment. We don't have access to clean well water, I think. I don't know. You don't have a well in your backyard, do you? If I do have one, I don't know about it, but. I don't know. There's some weird stuff buried back there. Yeah. It all depends on how often you do yard work. You know, you're like, yeah, I don't know what's back underneath that mass. Sometimes uh, ghostly creatures come crawling out of my backyard. So I don't know. Eldritch horrors are not necessarily an indication that there is a well okay. in, the, in the nearby area. It's a common misconception. Uh, yeah. So unless you have access to clean water, uh, that's going to be a huge, huge problem. And for much of the population of the United States, that is, in fact, a huge problem. That you don't, you know, you don't necessarily live near a place where you can reliably get potable water. Uh, even bigger problem in other parts of the world, obviously. So that's another issue. Then we have the cars and fuel. So your car, let's say it's an electromagnetic pulse. Some of your car systems might get fried, but in general, you know, we're talking about good old internal combustion. That's not affected by electromagnetic pulses. That's not an issue. Um, it's a mechanical system, not a. I well, mean, I understand it is largely. I mean, wouldn't there be electronical? Com- it electronical. Excuse me. Um. Uh, yeah, it is, of course, largely mechanical. Yeah. You know, combustion. But I wonder about the electronic components, especially if you have one of these newer cars that's all computer brains. The newer, it. the newer your vehicle, the more prone it would be to a real issue with an EMP or solar flare. Uh, the older your vehicle, the more reliable it would be in those conditions, uh, assuming that everything's in good working order, obviously. Mm-hmm. 
But even so, you can't get to the gas. If it's a gas-powered car, then you are you've got as much as you have in your tank, and that's pretty much going to be it. Right. You can't go cut down some gas from the forest next door. Right. The gas has to be refined from oil. Yeah, and so the refineries are going to be offline. The even if it even if they weren't offline, you still have to have transportation. Like you have to transport the fuel to the different uh, fueling stations. Fueling stations will be offline because they need electricity to run. So. It's a big, big problem, right? You would have enough gas to get you wherever, you know, however far your your tank of gas will take you, assuming you got a full tank, uh, and that would be it. Once you ran out, you'd be pretty much stuck unless you were able to, again, siphon gas out of some other vehicle. Right, out of Max's car. But be careful because it's booby-trapped. Yeah, you're talking about Mr. Mad Max. Of course. Uh, so then if we're looking at diesel engines, that's a little different. Right. Some diesel engines can run on biodiesel, which is uh, – some of them can actually run on vegetable oil. You know, so, I would say that's an ideal scenario, but then I'm like, well, you don't encounter vegetable oil any more commonly in nature than you do gasoline. Right. I mean, that, yeah, that's could, also something that is has to be expressed in an industrial process. Basically. Yes, yeah, you could you could run out and buy as much as you could from, assuming that you have some way of buying. Yeah. I mean, I don't carry that much cash on me on any given day, so so maybe like in you're imagining in the early days of the apocalyptic scenario, yeah. there is less price gouging on vegetable oil than there is on gasoline. Well, probably water would be the biggest one, actually. Yeah. Uh, the, I would guess water would be chief. But yes, I do think that, um, at least initially. So you would have to you know, somehow have a means of purchasing this stuff, assuming that people have faith in the currency. It all depends on what the nature of the catastrophe was, obviously. But um, you would also have to have currency. <laughs> if you don't, right. if you don't have cash on you, you're probably stuck. Uh, but yeah, you could you could presumably use vegetable oil or some other means of oil to to fuel your vehicle at least in the short term. But then once you once those supplies are out, then you're just as stuck as everybody else. Uh, so yeah, the Mad Max future where people are fighting over water and they have cars that magically are fueled by means that I don't know like how that works. I don't know how they're able to keep a system in place to, to capture and refine fuel and then distribute fuel uh, apart from barter town, which is run on methane. <laughs> yeah. That is also in the second movie, the road warrior isn't the little settlement that the uh, the raiders are attacking. They're they're like extracting oil from the ground and refining it, aren't they? Like yeah. they've set up their own refinery. Yeah, it just it makes me wonder. Like if you can set up your own refinery, couldn't you set up a desalination facility? Mm. Because the big issue is water in the Mad Max world. That's the well, huge one. water and gasoline. I mean, yeah, it seems like they're both pretty. But I mean, if you're if you're able to get your if you're able to set up a refinery. After this, whatever the apocalyptic event is, uh, then you probably also could create a desalination plant, which would, assuming you are anywhere close to the ocean, would solve a lot of your water issues or at least at least diminish them. Um, So then uh, getting the cars out of the way, assuming that we haven't reached this Mad Max magical world where we can still operate a refinery, but everything else has gone completely bonkers. Uh, What about personal electronics? There. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what are you going to do with them? Yeah. They might have a battery. 
Yeah. And that'll work as long as the battery is charged. Yep. Or you need to plug them in somewhere and that'll work as long as you have access to power. But if you do, why are we talking about this? You could, you could potentially have solar panels to recharge electronics. Like there are oh, a lot okay. of things yeah. that do that, but it takes but a, Again, we sort of said at the beginning, like, Oh, if you've got off the grid power, yeah. you're in a whole different situation. Then mainly you got to worry about who's coming to get your goods. Well, I'm just thinking back to when I got a How Stuff Works backpack that had a solar panel built into it <laughs> where I could charge I a phone. I bet that came up with so much power. 12 hours of having it sit in the sun would charge it, would charge a phone. But that's 12 hours of of direct sunlight on that panel. By the way, sun does not stay still for 12 hours. So you got to like you would have to continuously position the backpack to have an ideal amount of sunlight in order to generate the electricity necessary just to recharge a phone. Yeah. Uh so yeah, you could potentially have some electronics last a fairly long time with rechargeable batteries with solar power. It would be sporadic and also the underlying infrastructure that supported them is no longer there. So you're not getting a lot of use out of it unless you're just like well, it's the apocalypse. Fortunately, I downloaded all these episodes of, I don't know, whatever I, I was TV just, show on I was the just thinking iPad. Like, I was just thinking like, well, it's the apocalypse and everything's gone to hell, but at least I can still play Angry Birds. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, you might try have more survival-oriented concerns, yeah. Yeah, so it's... um. Lord Humongous will kill you for that iPad. Right, so so the, the electronics problem also non-trivial. All right, so let's talk a little bit about what would happen during one of these blackouts? I actually, uh, you linked to a an article that was part of a National Geographic special about this. Yeah, it was written by Patrick J. Kiger, who writes for How Stuff Works. Yeah, so one of our one of the members of the family wrote yeah. this thing, and the, and it was a really good article, and it also linked to an interactive page that was all part of this package National Geographic put out. Yeah, it was all depressing, about, but very interesting. Yeah, called American Blackout. <laughs> and uh, the page that was interactive was really cool. It was un- it was telling you how a nationwide blackout in America might unfold over the course of 10 days. They assume that after 10 days, whatever the issue was has been resolved and power can be restored. But within that 10 days, an amazing amount of catastrophe and chaos would occur. Um and they looked at uh, the potential death count of a 10-day blackout, nationwide blackout. Keeping in mind, this also affects things like hospitals. So people who would be reliant upon uh, medical facilities to keep them in, in keep them alive, they would be at m- most at risk, obviously. Mm-hmm. And they figured that it would have a death count of around 339,013 people wow. after 10 days. That's a, That's without... Factoring in whatever it was that caused the blackout in the first place. Of course. Right. So if there was some other catastrophic event that happened first, obviously that death toll would be in addition to this number. Uh, And the numbers would be much higher depending upon whatever catastrophe it was. Zombie apocalypse through the roof. Um, So then you've got uh, the financial impact. So assuming that it's something that we could recover from where it doesn't stay post-apocalyptic for very long, like whatever Mm -hmm. the issue is, we resolve it. Uh, after 10 days, it would be a cost of $1.2 trillion of lost productivity, of damages, of all those things kind of lumped in together. Yeah, but just think about all that pent-up demand. <laughs> Sounds like a great time to start a business. Just, just think of how much you would save on your electricity bill because you haven't been able to use it for 10 days. Yeah. So 
then we will have a real brief section here just to talk about what you what you might want to consider to have as kind of a preparedness kit. Yeah, these are your five tips. And this is in case of, uh, you know, these these blackout situations, which could happen for lots of different reasons. Yeah. Uh, you want to stock enough food and water and any medical supplies you might need for everyone in your family to last for 72 hours. Now, obviously, this is referring to food that would not need to be refrigerated. Right. So yeah. this, isn't, this isn't 72 hours worth of mayonnaise. Yeah, this would be like canned goods, that sort of stuff. Mm. And, uh, you know. You might also want to go ahead and invest in some means of like a hot, like like some non-electronic means of heating said food if you want to have it cooked. <laughs> now, and of course, as Harlan Ellison would remind us, you need a can opener. Yes, a can opener would yes, a manual can opener would yes. be very important. Uh, you also want to make sure you have a stocked first aid kit, which makes sense. Uh, flashlights and a battery-powered radio plus batteries doesn't do you much good if you don't have any. Good, you know, reliable batteries to use. Uh, candles and matches, preferably waterproof matches, also a really good idea. Mm-hmm. And if you have a car, make it a habit to avoid dipping below half full on the gas tank, because if one of these events happens, you want to have enough fuel for you to be able to get home or get away from whatever the incident is if it happens to be localized to your area. Yeah. Now, obviously, as we've said several times now, your your best case scenario is to be energy independent. Like yeah. if, you, if you actually had a bunch of solar panels or some kind of way of generating power in your home that's yeah. not going to run out, there you go. Yeah, I've actually seen, I was looking into this, Treehugger did an uh, article about the various types of power generation you could do or electricity generation you could mm-hmm. do at home. And solar power is good, except of course, if it is super volcano or dust or yeah. whatever. If there's if there's something that's blocking the sunlight from getting to to Earth, that's not going to help you too much, right? Right. So, um, but then you would also have much more serious problems than not being able to charge your iPad, I mean, sure. Such as yeah. like crops won't grow, right? Or breathing, <laughs> yeah, that could also be a problem. Uh, wind turbines also are a possibility, possibility depending upon where you live and the regulations there. You can have um, personal wind turbines. Yeah, would they generate? I mean, a like a like a, a reasonably turbine, sized one that you could build on your own property. Would that get enough energy? A to, wind turbine with a four foot diameter, a blade diameter, would be enough to power a an average home without running all your major appliances. Like your like you wouldn't be able to run the dryer on that. You don't need a one with a nine foot diameter to generate enough electricity to do that. Assuming that you're getting reliable amount of wind where you live. Mm-hmm. And obviously this would be more for people who are not in a dense urban environment. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So if you happen to live out in a rural area where you could build such a structure, um, that would be a possibility. I've also seen even micro hydroelectric power, where if you live near a running stream that's running with enough force, you could have a micro hydroelectric Power generator. Yeah, I've heard of this. Yeah. That's a cool uh, idea. It's a great idea because, again, like just like with the major hydraulic uh, systems or not hydraulic system, hydro powered systems, uh, you don't have to worry about running out of fuel. So great if you have the accessibility to that sort of thing. So let's conclude this by talking about some of our favorite post-apocalyptic stories. And, you know, this this isn't so much on the uh, technology side as as just the the worlds that have been imagined by various people uh, that take place in in an in a, on an Earth where something like this has happened, like 
some some catastrophic event has happened. Sure. Well, these tend to divide between like the very serious and then the less serious. Yeah, I would say. So so both of it, us. It's hard to compare the road and Mad Max. Yes. <laughs> both of us really like the road. That is one of my favorite books of all time. It is a very sad, very disturbing book, but it's also very moving. It has a very uplifting ending. Uh, it's, Some might say that. Yeah. It's, it, it at least it ends on a at least an opt. Well, from my reading, it, yeah. it ends on an optimistic note. I would agree. Yeah. So it's, but it is, it's a hard read, guys. I mean, it's not, it's not. Uh, Pleasant. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It is imagining sort of the last gasp of humanity. So it's not one of these where you know the, we've we've just had the uh, the apocalyptic event. It's yeah. it's one of these where there aren't many people at all left. And and the really cool thing, or one of the really cool things about the book, is it never explains what the event was. Yeah. So it describes. Lots of things like uh, there are earthquakes. Mm-hmm. Um, the sky is constantly gray and yep. all of the plant life is dead, presumably because the sunlight has been blocked by the cloud cover in the skies. And when I first read it, I assumed, well, I think it's probably talking about nuclear war or something like right. that. But then I read I, and I wish I could find this. I tried to go back and find it and couldn't. I read a blog post years ago on the Internet. Somebody had put together explaining their theory of why they thought the the event imagined by the author Cormac McCarthy was a supervolcano eruption. Yeah. And I remember thinking that they made a really good case, but then I couldn't find what they wrote. Yeah, I think the best argument for that is I don't recall anything in there about uh, a fear of radiation. Yeah. Um, whereas a supervolcano could cause many of the same features as a nuclear winter, mm-hmm. uh, but without the the nuclear fallout. Um, yeah, that's a that's a great it's a great story. It's again tough read, but a great worthwhile. Uh, along the same lines, I guess some people might consider this lower form of art, but I, I was actually really impressed by the story in the video game The Last of Us. I'd say yeah. that definitely, hands down, had the best writing of any video game I've ever played. And, and the world they imagined was kind of sad and yep. beautiful, and uh, and it was a post-apocalyptic scenario caused by a fungal infection that created a zombie-like state. Yeah, it's a it's essentially another zombie outbreak story, but without it being... Uh, you know, Dumb. <laughs> yeah, without it being magical zombies, it's it's based more on, on things that we have actually observed in nature, though mm-hmm. not with humans, but with other life forms. Right, yeah, it's based on the, the fungus that infects ants and changes their behavior, gets yeah. into their brains. It's just kind of like, well, what if a fungus could get into your brain and make you want to bite people? Right. So that is that is another good one. Uh, I also enjoyed World War Z, which I would argue still falls on the serious side. I haven't read the novel. I saw the movie and was not very The novel impressed. is entirely different. From the yeah, movie. I've heard they, that. They, I heard the novel was, in fact, just like completely different, even yes. in format and yeah. approach. There, there are tiny elements that happen in the novel that are touched upon in the film, but they are not at all related otherwise. it's The novel is really more of a collection of uh, stories. It's it's told as uh, there's a journalist, uh, not well, journalist who's working essentially for the U.N., uh, collecting the stories from survivors. This, this is post-zombie outbreak, post-war with the zombies. The humans have won the war. Zombie outbreak has been largely defeated. Mm-hmm. There's still some zombies in the world, but they are few and far between. 
and are are often you know rounded up and and killed off. So humanity is on the rebound now, and it's more of a discussion about what happened leading up to and throughout this zombie war. Uh, with and it, and it's told in a way where you don't really know what the actual precipitating event was, um, which is very realistic. I think you know, like as a, as someone who wants to hear a story, you kind of want to know all the details. But if you were actually a person there, you wouldn't necessarily have all that information available to you, especially when you consider that a lot of the people who might have been responsible in some way or another or had observed what happened are no longer around because <laughs> yeah. they've been turned into zombies or just killed in some other way. Yeah. Um, very, uh, powerful story though. And also very interesting to hear kind of the, the human psychology that might be involved in something like that. Yeah. So in both of the ones I mentioned so far, there was a pretty much a total breakdown of, of the larger function of technological society. Though in The Last of Us, there, there, you know, there are still people who get some power from generators and yeah. stuff. It seems like somebody is still locating gasoline somehow. Mm-hmm. But also that's one of the examples I was mentioning. Another one would be Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, where yeah. people are trying to get hydroelectric plants back online. Because that, as we mentioned, that does seem like a really good bet for trying to revive at least a local power grid in a post-apocalyptic scenario. Right. And in that world, I mean, it's only like a tiny bit of San Francisco, I think, that's still alive. Yeah. Uh, or it's a concentration you mean of in, humans. You mean in Dawn of the Planet of the Apes? Yes. Not, yeah. uh, not The Last of no, Us. No, no, not in The Last of Us. Last of Us, it's all spread out all over the place. But. Yeah. Uh, so here's another one along a maybe sillier line. I love Dawn of the Dead. I like the way things are progressing there. I like watching there the scenes that depicted the breakdown of discipline in the media like the TV stations that are still trying to broadcast, but people are sort of losing focus. I assume you are talking about the original Donald yes. Trump, not the remake. Yeah. Yes. The the one that was also a, a commentary on consumerism. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's a great movie. I, uh, for for me, one of the big ones, the Fallout series of games. Uh, uh, yeah. Fantastic. Uh, weird tone mishmash of comedic and tragic in those games, but it, I think it works. Yeah. Uh, there's this... This kind of almost, almost manic optimism that is being portrayed in a lot of the, the stuff you come across as a character in those games, despite the overwhelmingly awfulness of the yeah. world. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. It's, but, uh, but it's that, gallows humor. Yeah. It's that 1950s style of you can do it, but. Meanwhile, like everything's on fire and everyone's terrible. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. Also, another way that it, it sort of has a mashup is it's very high tech, low tech mashup. Yeah. So it, it has, you know, lasers and exoskeleton power suits and robots, but also, you know, extremely, you know, bow and arrow kind of low tech well, and, stuff. And the aesthetic tends to be the 1950s style of our vision of the future. Yeah. Not, not how things actually turned out. So it's a really it's. It's an alternate past leading to a an alternate bizarre future. Um, and you've got some other ones on here. In fact, these are also some of my favorites. Well, uh, yeah. I a mean, couple of the Mad Max movies. Of course. you. I, I could not neglect Mad Max. I, I have to confess, I've never actually seen the first one all the way through. Yeah. The uh, Road Warrior is, is a more entertaining film. Oh, yeah. So you start with the second one. I love The Road Warrior. Mm. Can't get enough. Uh, Beyond Thunderdome, I know a lot of people think it's bad. Maybe it is kind of bad, but I still love it. It's it's definitely more campy. Yeah. And then 
So, folks, when I saw Mad Max Fury Road, it's not necessarily that it's the best movie I've ever seen in my life. It's that once I walked out of the theater, it was the only movie I had ever seen in my life. <laughs> uh, I loved that movie so much. It's also, it just it hit all of the happy places in my body and in my brain. It's also funny that uh, on forward thinking, somehow we managed to bring it back to the doof wagon every few episodes. Right. That was just such an amazing amazing reality that they created. I think what I told Rachel when we walked out of the theater was I feel like I could rip Australia in half with my hands. <laughs> All right. Now you've got to tell everybody what Zardoz is, because unless they are, uh, you know, a fan of B movie schlock science fiction, they probably have no clue. Well, Zardoz actually touches on something kind of interesting, despite the fact that it's a very weird and very intensely bad movie. Starring uh, Sean Connery. Yeah, so it's got Sean Connery wearing this, like, red diaper and yeah. and carrying a gun, and he plays some kind of, I don't know, future post-apocalyptic wasteland policeman who mostly just murders people from what you can tell. And then he gets sucked into a giant head. That's actually a spaceship mm -hmm. and taken to a strange sort of commune of immortal psychic people. Yeah. It's very hard to describe the plot of Zardoz, You've but done a pretty good job considering <laughs> it's one of the weirdest movies I've ever seen. And for that reason, it's actually worth seeing despite the fact that it is, it utterly fails to be good, but it is never for a second boring. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, it, yeah, the, the, oh, but I mentioned that it touches on something interesting. It actually does. The idea that past technologies through a sort of like dark age mm -hmm. imposed by, I don't know, catastrophe of one kind or another could be rediscovered, but we wouldn't remember how to use them or how to maintain them. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, it's possible for dark ages to happen and then to reemerge from them and to rediscover all of the scientific and technological sophistication of an earlier age. That That's actually happened on Earth at times. Sure. You know, you had the Bronze Age collapse. Yeah. Uh, you had the you had what are sometimes called the dark ages in Europe. Now, a lot of historians look back and say, well, that's maybe not the most accurate way to describe that age in Europe, but at least. Then you had times when a lot of the technological progress that had been achieved during, say, the Roman Empire, suddenly people didn't know how to do this stuff anymore. Right. Yeah, not until the Renaissance where they began to rediscover and build upon those those uh, advances from ancient times. Yeah, so Zardoz kind of touches on that. It's got all these people who are in some ways sort of interacting with high technology, but they don't understand it. Yeah. So you, I recommend if you've never seen Zardoz – you don't need to see Zardoz necessarily, <laughs> but definitely seek out the trailer, which is on YouTube and is amazing. Yeah. Uh, especially if you love the name Zardoz, because you're going to hear that a lot. Yeah, you're going to hear Sean Connery <laughs> say it in his accent over and over. Zardoz. Yeah. Uh, and then the last one you have on here, Robot Monster. Well. Does this really I mean, belong in post-apocalyptic? Yes, it does, because the premise of Robot Monster is that this race of aliens who... Uh, the main one we meet is the robot monster named Roman, I believe. Yeah. And he is a guy in some <laughs> kind of ape suit. It's like a gorilla suit with a 
It's like a gumball machine on his head. Yeah. And that's his costume. Yeah. And he represents this species of aliens who I think comes and conquers Earth. I don't remember all the details, but suddenly (laughs) there are just like five people left on Earth. But Roman has an extremely difficult time conquering these five people who (laughs) seem to be about a mile away from him. Yeah, I... uh... I, I think of that as a movie where the audience feels as if they've been through a post-apocalyptic event, <laughs> uh, not necessarily the film itself. Well, I think that was on an episode of Mystery Science Theater, wasn't it? Uh, you know, I want to say I know that. Well, they've done so many, but yeah. I want to say that that was one of the ones they've done. Um, they've certainly have alluded to it before. Well, Joe, thank you so much for coming on here and doing these these pair of episodes about post-apocalyptic technology. Well, thank you for inviting me. It has been a whole barrel of fun. Yeah, it's, it's, I enjoyed pulling that tuna out of the basket. It, it also, like, like I said with the Manhattan Project episodes with Ben, I was like, it's kind of like, you know, the stuff they don't want you to know is I think of that as the other side of the coin of forward thinking. <laughs> like, <laughs> like that's, those are like forward thinking is the big optimistic side typically. And stuff they don't want you to know is like the 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 dark cynical side. It's all typically. stuff to scare you. Yeah, <laughs> and in a way, this is also kind of like the other side of the forward thinking coin. It's very different from the stuff we do over at Forward Thinking. Uh, we wouldn't normally explore this kind of topic over there, but it was fun to be able to explore it here on tech stuff, um, and and talk about some of our favorite post apocalyptic stories as well as the actual uh, things that we would expect in those kind of scenarios. I hope that. Largely, really, I hope that does one of two things. One, it convinces people that, yeah, it's important for us to think about ways to make our various infrastructures more robust Mm -hmm. uh, so that in the case of something catastrophic happening, we can localize it. We can we can separate it from everything else and we can deal with it so that it doesn't become a, a, a wider problem. And two, that it alerts them that there are things that we as citizens can do to protect ourselves uh, so that, you know, if something like this happens or when something like this happens, if you're looking at a long enough t- time scale, we get through it with the minimum amount of problems. Yeah. Knowing that, you know, it's not going to be necessarily fun or e- easy to get through it. But there are things we can do that will make it less traumatic. And that's important. So uh, I think those are the messages to go home with. Not not that, you know, I'm not trying to scare anyone. I'm more like just be aware it's, it's good to know that way at least <laughs> at least if something like that happens it's not a total surprise uh but you can find joe's work over at forward thinking you can also find his work on lots of different stuff you work you're on stuff to blow your mind i've had a busy week yeah so i i am now one of the hosts of stuff to blow your mind along with robert lamb and christian sager mm-hmm. and recently i just appeared on a video and podcast with stuff they don't want you to know about paid online manipulators yeah so joe's all over the place you can check out his work there and of course, if you have any suggestions for future episodes of Tech Stuff or uh, future guests I could have on the show, you can write me, let me know. The email address is techstuff at housereports.com. Drop me a line on Facebook, Twitter, or Tumblr. The handle it all three is techstuffhsw. And I'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 